0: and Birth Control by Charles D. Provan as read by Michael Wyatt. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books, many free Christian resources as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great, discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. This book, The Bible and Birth Control, is also available from Stillwaters Revival Books in soft cover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. And please don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation Bookshelf and Puritan Bookshelf CD sets. You visit our website at swrb.com as these CDs are a great way to build a major reformed library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books. Now to the, our reading of the Bible and Birth Control, which we pray you find to be a great blessing in which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible and Birth Control is copyrighted 1989 by the author, Charles D. Provan, and is read to audio with his written permission. In of the previous paragraph, he or she is still faced with the fact that the scripture calls castration a blemish in animals, and if a destroyed or damaged reproductive system is a blemish for animals, how much more so for human beings made in the image of God? Therefore, neither permanent sterility (vasectomies) nor partial sterility (condoms) are permissible. Castration destroys the seed before it is made. Birth control destroys the seed after. It is only a matter of timing, and both do the same thing, namely, waste seed. Tubal ligation, which is merely female castration, is by implication forbidden also. Part B eunuchs in Israel. Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. No one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. We see that the scripture points to the badness of castration in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. If a person who was a eunuch involuntarily was not allowed to be a full Israelite, what would God's view be? Be towards someone who did this awful thing to himself because he wanted to prevent God from sending children into the world. Part C. Punishment for potential damage to the male reproductive system. Deuteronomy 25, verses 11 and 12. If two men, a man and his countrymen, are struggling together, and the wife of one comes near to deliver her husband from the hand of the one who is striking him, and puts out her hand and seizes his genitals, then you shall cut off her hand, you shall not show pity. This law is even more pointed than the previous one on eunuchs. In order that she may stop a man who is fighting with her husband, a lady grabs her husband's opponent by his sexual organs. What does God say to do with her? Do you reward her? Do you commend her for saving her husband? No. No. Rather, the civil authorities are commanded to take the lady and cut off her hand. They cannot cancel the punishment or change it. The lady gets her hand cut off whether she hurt the man or not. We can observe that God is extremely angry with such a lady. If there, if there is a fight and the woman grabs the man's hand or foot, she suffers no punishment. But if she grabs his sexual organs, she gets her hand cut off. God is, by these verses, showing that interfering with the sexual organ's job is strictly forbidden. And these verses become a proof text for forbidding birth control because birth control prevents the sexual organs from carrying out their duties, just the same as grabbing the sexual organs in a fight has the potential to do If God forbids the potential on pain of getting the hand cut off, how much more does God forbid the actual? Reason number seven seed as semen or children. Hebrews 7 verses 9 to 10 and Job 10 verses 8 to 11. Hebrews 7 verses 9 to 10. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Job 10 verses 8 to 11. Thy hands fashioned and made me altogether, and wouldst thou now destroy me? Remember now that thou hast made me as clay, and wouldst thou turn me to dust again? Didst thou not pour me out like milk, and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews? If a person looks up the word seed in the Old Testament, an interesting fact will pop up. Namely, the word Zerah, Z-E-R-A-H, is used of human seed in two different ways. A. Semen, as in Genesis 38, 9, and Leviticus 15, verses 18 and 32. And B. Children or people after birth, as in Genesis 46, verse 6, and Leviticus 22, verse 13. Some may say, quote, so what does that prove? The word house can be used of a man's building or of a man's family. Likewise, just because the word for semen and offspring is the same word, this doesn't prove that they are the same thing. Quote. To oppose this view, we have reason and scripture. The reason that scripture uses the same word for semen and children is because all humans at one time existed in semen form. Without semen, no children are possible. So, viewing children as a continuous process, we can see that the word seed applies well to both stages of human life, before and after conception. Further, what is the reason that most, most methods of birth control seek to prevent the seed from uniting with a female egg? Is it not to prevent the birth of real people who may result from the semen produced by the sexual act? Obviously, birth control does not seek to prevent the birth of imaginary babies. Imaginary babies do not need prevented. Next, the scripture in Hebrews 7, verses 1 to 10 proves the subservience of the Levitical priesthood to the prophesied Melchizedek priesthood of Christ by using the following logic. Levi is less than Abraham, and Abraham is less than Melchizedek therefore the Melchizedek priesthood of Christ prophesied by Psalm 110 is greater than the Levitical priesthood of the Mosaic covenant during the argument of Hebrews there occurs the following statement Hebrews 7 verses 9 to 10 and so to speak through Abraham even Levi who received tithes paid tithes for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him Note that Hebrews says that Levi, in some real, not imaginary way, was in the loins of his great-grandfather, Abraham. Now, if Abraham had practiced birth control and succeeded, would he not have eliminated the real person, Levi, who was born some hundred years later, according to this verse? Here is what John Owen said when commenting upon the scripture. Quote, the force of this proof seems to depend on a double principle. One, that children, the whole posterity of anyone, are in his loins before they are born. And this principle is sure in the light of nature and common reason. They are in them as the effect in its cause, nor have they any future existence but with relation unto their progenitors, even the remotest of them, end quote. By the way, Owen was opposed to birth control, as may be observed from his comments on Hebrews 13, verse 4. Those who practice birth control should realize that what they are doing not only eliminates semen, which nobody seems to be concerned with, but thereby also eliminates future people. These eliminated people exist in the loins of those who practice birth control and are subsequently destroyed by birth control. We have encountered people who disagree with the above view because of what the Bible says about predestination. Such persons reason like this, quote, Well, God decides who will be born on earth. Therefore, if I practice birth control and God gives me two children, that must be how many children God wants me to have. Therefore, since nothing can hinder God's mighty will, birth control is okay, end quote. What shall we say to this? Well, we say that if this line of reasoning is correct, then nothing is a sin at all. For example, you could shoot your neighbor in the head and say, "Well, God could have stopped me from pulling the trigger, or he could have made the bullet miss. Therefore, since nothing can hinder God's mighty will, murder is okay." Or perhaps you might set houses on fire and say quote, "Well, since everything that happens is according to God's mighty will, then arson must be okay, end quote. Who is there among Christians who accepts such incredible sophistry when it comes to murder or arson? But many Christians swallow reasoning like this in order to justify conduct which, with, with which they already agree, like with birth control. Of course, God has the ability to give couples children whether they practice birth control or not. But this proves nothing at all. According to Holy Scripture, God can make children out of rocks. But if you are waiting for God to make kids for you this way, we think that you'll be waiting a long time. Those who use such reasonings to justify themselves need to realize that God has appointed godly means to accomplish godly ends. God wants to give us food, but he has will that we should work to get it. Likewise, God wants us to help us when we are in trouble, but he wants us to pray first. Now, God feeds lots of people who are lazy and helps lots of people who don't pray as they should, but does this justify laziness or people who don't pray? Of course not. Likewise, God sometimes gives people children in spite of condoms, spermicides and withdrawal, and even abortion. This fact does not justify any of these unnatural activities. It is God's command that we have children, and therefore it is God's will that we have natural sexual intercourse to accomplish this goal. Let us now examine God's word concerning Seneca Cherub, the king of Assyria, Isaiah 37, verses 21 to 29. Seneca Cherub had invaded and destroyed Judah as God himself had ordained long before the event, Isaiah 37, verse 26. Yet, does this fact of predestination show that Seneca Cherub's conduct was morally defensible? Absolutely not as one may see from reading Isaiah 37, verses 28 to 29. God was angry with Chene- Seneca or Cherub for his ungodly conduct, even though God preordained that event. This is, needless to say, a mysterious concept, but it should be apparent that predestination does not justify forbidden conduct. It is not without reason that Moses says in Deuteronomy 29:29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. As further proof that our view of birth control does not contradict the biblical doctrine of predestination, we now quote from the writings of John Calvin, who, as we all know, surely believed in predestination. Quote, the voluntary spilling of semen outside of intercourse between man and woman is a monstrous thing. Deliberately to withdraw from coitus in order that semen may fall on the ground is doubly monstrous, for this is to extinguish the hope of the race and to kill before he is born the hoped for offspring. This impiety is especially condemned, now by the Spirit through Moses' mouth, that Onan, as it were, by a violent abortion, no less cruelly than filthily filthily cast upon the ground the offspring of his brother, torn from the maternal womb. Besides, in this way he tried, as far as he was able, to wipe out a part of the human race. If any woman ejects a fetus, from her womb by drugs, it is reckoned a crime incapable of expiation, and deservedly Onan incurred upon himself the same kind of punishment, infecting the earth by his semen, in order that T- Tamar might not conceive a future human being as an inhabitant of the earth. End quote. Calvin's Latin Commentary on Genesis 38, verse 10. Though Calvin certainly believed in predestination, yet he condemned birth control as the murder of future human beings. He certainly did not think that God's secret purposes justify conduct which the word of God forbids. As for our second scripture passage, Job 10, verses 8 to 11, we have included it because it is one of the few passages, if not the only one, in the Bible— to describe the sexual act itself and relate it to the creation of an individual person. Verses 10 and 11 describe the emission of semen and its formation into a baby in the mother's womb. What is noteworthy about the verse is this. Job specifically says that it was him present in the semen of his father. Observe. Didst thou not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? Having read anti-abortion literature published by Christians, we have noticed that a sizable portion of Bible text cited to prove that children in the womb are human beings are passages like this. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. Jeremiah 1, verse 5 And yet many who correctly oppose abortion also favor birth control in spite of Job 10, verse 10, which proves that human life is present in human semen. If human life is not in human semen, then why do people use spermicides, that is, sperm killers? If it is wrong to destroy life in the womb, then it is wrong to deliberately kill semen. Someone might say, quote, Oh, who is there in the church who adopts such a ridiculous, unscientific view of semen?" To which we would reply, Martin Luther. While commenting on Genesis 2, verse 21, he said, Thus it is a great miracle that a small seed is planted and that out of it grows a very tall oak. But because these are daily occurrences, they have become a, of little importance, like the very process of our procreation. Surely, it is most worthy of wonder that a woman receives semen. That is, semen becomes thick, and, as Job eloquently said, Job, verse 10, verse, uh, Job 10, verse 10, is congealed and then is given shape and nourished until the fetus is ready for breathing air. End quote. Luther's Works, Volume 1 page 126. By the way, Calvin agreed with Luther's view, as one may see, by examining his comments upon the same verse. Let us also take the time to point out that the Church of Christ should not get its moral standards from the pseudo-God of, quote, modern science, end quote, but from the Holy Word of God, the Bible. The Bible and real science do not contradict each other at all, and where modern scientists draw erroneous conclusions from observations of the natural world, their conclusions are to be rejected. So, when, quote, great medical authorities, end quote, declare that a baby in the womb is not to be regarded as a human being, we must toss their views into the trash, and we must do likewise with their views on birth control. Reason number eight, the natural function of women. Romans 1 verses 25 to 27. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. God here says that cultures which reject the worship of God are punished by God giving them over to degrading passions. The road to these degrading passions begins when men and women exchange the natural function of women for that which is unnatural. This is stated in Romans 1 verses 26 to 27. What is the ultimate result of rejecting the natural function of women? Homosexuality and other like perversions. What is this natural function of women? Is it scrubbing the floor? Is it washing clothes? No, for men can do these things. The natural function of women is bearing children. All biological differences between men and women women point to this conclusion. The physical differences between men and women are as follows. 1. Women menstruate. Men don't. 2. Women produce milk. Men don't. 3. Women have uteri. Men don't. 4. Men have male sexual organs, women don't. Note these differences. What are these differences for? So women can bear children. There is nothing else that can be described as the natural function of women other than childbearing. If you say that the natural function of women is sexual intercourse, not childbearing, then why do women have uteri if they were not naturally to become pregnant? Why do women have breasts if not to feed babies? If childbearing is not the natural function of women, then why did God add all that, quote, unnecessary equipment which enables women to bear children? For it is readily apparent that breast and uteri are unnecessary for a woman to engage in sexual intercourse. It is evident that when God made women... He did not add unnecessary parts. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 18, God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. For what purpose did God give women uterine, so women could have intercourse? No, but rather that women could receive the seed from intercourse and nurture it. For what purpose did God give women breasts so men could stare at them? No. rather so women could nurture the children which God gives to them. So it is apparent that sexual intercourse is but the means to accomplish the natural function of women, which is childbearing. And if this is true, then birth control is opposing the natural function of women. Once again we quote from Martin Luther, Quote, Moses numbers fertility among the blessings. There will not be a barren woman among you, he says. Compare Exodus 23, verse 26. We do not regard this so highly today. Although we like and desire it in cattle, yet in the human race there are few who regard a woman's fertility as a blessing. Indeed, there are many who have an aversion for it and regard sterility as a special blessing. Surely, this is also contrary to nature. Much less is it pious and saintly. For this affection has been implanted by God in man's nature, so that it desires its increase and in multiplication. Accordingly, it is inhuman and godless to have a loathing for offspring. End quote. Luther's Works, Volume Five, Page Three Twenty Five. Reason Number Nine. Childbirth and Salvation for Women 1 Timothy 2, verses 11-15 to For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. But women shall be saved through the bearing of children, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Here we have a, quote, strange passage according to most people today. Quote, it can't mean spiritual salvation, In quote, says some. If you look up the verses in Paul's letters which contain the word saved, the same one that is in verse 15, you will find that every time Paul uses the word, he is talking about spiritual salvation. Is Paul then saying that women can earn salvation by childbearing? By no means. Salvation cannot be earned or merited. Salvation is by grace and not by works. What Paul is saying may be summarized as follows. If a woman is truly saved, she will prove her faith and her salvation by pursuing good works, which are, according to Jesus, inevitable for a true Christian. The pathway of teaching doctrine to husbands or ordering them around is not open to women. The pathway of obedience which leads to eternal salvation is for married women accompanied by childbearing if possible. Lest a woman think that the childbearing itself will save her, Paul adds that a woman bearing children will be saved if she continues in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Paul's statement is paralleled by that of Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 17. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Christ says the same thing again in Luke 10, verses 25 to 28. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How, do you, how does it read to you? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Jesus is not preaching salvation by law or works. He is teaching that if he person is truly a Christian, good works will accompany him to eternal life. It is not even possible to truly obey the law of God unless one is a Christian anyway. Paul is saying that the pathway to salvation for married women is attended by godly childbearing. Those who reject childbearing when they are married reject the good works which Paul says accompany salvation. To demonstrate that we are not teaching salvation by works, we will now quote Martin Luther and John Calvin who unswervingly defended salvation by grace alone. Let us see what they say 1 Timothy 2, verse 15 means. Martin Luther on 1 Timothy 2, verse 15. Quote, She will be saved. That subjection of woman... Women and dom- domination of men have not been taken away, have they? No, the penalty remains. The blame passed over, the pain and tribulation of childbearing continue. Those penalties will continue until judgment. So also the domin- dominion of men and the subjection of women continue. You must endure them. You will also be saved if you have also subjected yourself and bear your children with pain through bearing children. It is a very great comfort that a woman can be saved by bearing children, etc. That is, she has an honorable and salutary status in life if she keeps busy having children. We ought to recommend this passage to them, etc. She is described described as saved not for freedom, for license, but for bearing and rearing children. She is not saved by faith? Excuse me. Is she not saved by faith? He goes on and explains himself, bearing children is a wholesome responsibility, but for believers. To bear children is acceptable to God. He does not merely say that bearing children saves. He adds, if... The childbearing takes place in faith and love. It is a Christian work. For to the pure all things are pure. Titus 1, verse 15. Also, all things work together. Romans 8, verse 28. This is the comfort for married people in trouble. Hardship and all things are salutary, for through them they are moved forward toward salvation and against adultery. In faith. Paul had to add this lest women think that they are good in the fact that they bear children. Simple childbearing does nothing since the heathen also do this. but for Christian women, their whole responsibility is salutary. So much the more salutary than is bearing children. I add this, therefore, that they may not feel secure when they have no faith end quote." Luther's works, volume 28, page 279. As for John Calvin, his comments on our scripture passage are as follows, But she shall be saved. The weakness of the sex renders women more suspicious and timid, and the preceding statement might greatly terrify and alarm the strongest minds. For these reasons he modifies what he had said by adding a consolation. Paul, in order to comfort them and render their condition tolerable, informs them that they continue to enjoy the hope of salvation, though they suffer a temporal punishment. It is proper to observe that the good effect of this consolation is twofold. First, by the hope of salvation held out to them, they are prevented from falling into despair through alarm at the mention of their guilt. Secondly, they have they become accustomed to endure calmly and patiently the necessity of servitude so as to submit willingly to their husbands when they are informed that this kind of obedience is both profitable to themselves and acceptable to God. If this passage be tortured as Papists are wont to do to support the righteousness of works, the answer is easy. The apostle does not argue here about the cause of salvation, and therefore we cannot, cannot, cannot and must not infer from these words what works deserve. But they only show in what way God conducts us to salvation, to which he has appointed us through his grace, through childbearing. To censorious men it might appear absurd for an apostle of Christ not only to exhort women to give attention to the birth of offspring, but to press this work as religious and holy to such an extent as to represent it in the light of the means of procuring salvation. Whatever hypocrites or wise men of the world may think of it, when a woman, considering to what she has been called, submits to the condition which God has assigned to her and does not refuse to endure the pains or rather the fearful anguish of parturition, that's P-A-R-T-U-R-I-T-I-O-N, or anxiety about her offspring, or anything else that belongs to her duty, God values this obedience more highly than if, in some other manner, she made a great display of heroic virtues while she refused to obey the calling of God. To this must be added that no consolation could be more appropriate or more efficacious than to show that the very means, so to speak, of procuring salvation are found in the punishment itself. End quote. Calvin's Commentary, Volume 21, page 71. Summary Dear reader, we hope we have adequately demonstrated the great importance attached by God to being fruitful and multiplying. God views sterility as bad and large numbers of children as good. It is a great sin to destroy the seed God gives to you. Instead of destroying your future children by practicing birth control, you ought rather to consider the weight of the scriptures which have been here presented and adjust your conduct accordingly. Who can tell what great blessings God has for you, blessings which will prove to be of far greater worth to you than a vacation trip or a fancy car or any number of material things which will fade away? In closing, let us heed the words of the Apostle Paul who said in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. End quote. Chapter 2 Two Alternate Viewpoints on Birth Control by, quote, A Concerned Friend, end quote, in P- Pastor Roger Kovacini, K-O-V-A-C-I-N-Y, and their rebuttals by Charles Provan. This is a quote from Martin Luther. Quote, The rest of the populace is more wicked than even the heathen themselves. For most married people do not desire offspring. Indeed, they turn away from it and consider it better to live without children, because they are poor and do not have the means with which to support a household. But this is especially true of those who are devoted to idleness and laziness and shun the sweat and the toil of marriage. But the purpose of marriage is not to have pleasure and to be idle, but to procreate and bring up children to support a household. This, of course, is a huge burden full of great cares and toils, but you have been created by God to be a husband or a wife and that you may learn to bear these troubles. Those who have no love for children are swine, stocks, and logs unworthy of being called men or women. For they despise the blessing of God, the creator and author of marriage. End quote. Alternate Viewpoint Number One Another View on Onan by a Concerned Friend What has been written on spilling the seed by Onan has been used to burden many, many consciences. Nobody has the right to burden the conscience wherein God does not burden it. There is probably no married man, n- not even such as condemns the spilling of the seed most vehemently, who is not guilty of spilling the seed. Marriage is given not only for producing children, but also for the joy of sexual intercourse. Since this is so, every man who has intercourse with his wife during her infertile period is spilling the seed. Then in intercourse during the fertile period, almost always only one spermatozoan penetrates the egg of the female all the rest millions of them are spilled wasted the hebrew word used in genesis 38 means to waste corrupt destroy devastate all but one are destroyed wasted spilled if you will they do not produce god himself destroys the seed in regular intercourse in night losses in menstruation All natural processes. Onan is said to have been killed by God because he spilled the seed. There is nothing in the whole Bible that specifically condemns the spilling of the seed. But there is something in the Bible that says that the brother of a dead husband should go into his widow to raise up children for the dead, specifically the firstborn of the union. All kinds of sexual sins are condemned in the word, but not once the spilling of the seed. A brother could refuse to marry the dead brother's wife and not be killed for it. And so it is said the only difference between such an unwilling brother and Onan was that Onan spilled the seed and that therefore God killed him immediately, according to Luther. There was another difference, a big difference. Onan did not refuse to marry Tamar, his brother's widow. If he had, Tamar, according to Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 10, could have taken off his shoe and spit into his face and thus shamed him. No, he married her, but he destroyed the seed during intercourse. Why? Lest he should give seed to his brother. That was his sin. To raise up seed for the brother was why Judah told Onan to marry Tamar to go into her. We read, And the thing which... He did displease the Lord, wherefore he slew him. The Lord had slain Onan's wicked brother before that. What was the thing that displeased the Lord? Onan did three things. One, he spilled the seed. Two, he prevented birth. Three, he refused to give seed to his brother, although he married the widow. The whole idea was to raise up seed for his brother. Spilling the seed was only a means to that end, wicked end. It was like taking a vow and not fulfilling it. It is a question whether God killed the old man immediately. The Hebrew verb used in Genesis 38, verse 9, means in the tense used there, pile, P-I-E-L. Often, much, for a long time. It seems that God gave him time to repent of his refusal to give his brother seed, but Onan persisted, so God killed him. The NIV and AAT both translate, not when, but whenever. So also other translators. How can anybody say that spilling the seed is worse than adultery or even incest? Especially disturbing, Is this in view of the fact that nowhere in the Bible is spilling of the seed specifically forbidden? How can we condemn it if God himself spills the seed in night losses, in intercourse, in menstruation? It is said that wasting the seed is a violation of God's command to be fruitful and multiply. In the first place, this is not an absolute command. Jesus did not marry. Paul did not marry. Many cannot marry even if they would. Secondly, God does not say anywhere that we must have as many children as possible. A person may be said to be fruitful even if he has only six children, although having been capable of having more. God told our first parents to fill the earth. The earth is pretty well filled up. If all people from the beginning had had all the children they could possibly bear, there would perhaps be no standing room on the earth. It is said that God would supply the need of all the children brought into the world, even if everybody produced as many children as possible, that a large family should not worry anybody. We know that God has blessed richly many large families, but we all know families, large families that cannot buy their food, that cannot pay their rent, that are suffering. They are families in our own churches. Does this mean that Jesus failed to keep his promise in Matthew 6? No. If they are alive, the promise is being kept. He has his way of providing. Jesus may be testing the family, or the family lacks faith or initiative. Paul was hungry at times. In Hebrews 11, we read of the martyrs who at times were destitute. A destitute family may hesitate to add to an already suffering group. If what Provan wrote is true, then nobody will be saved, outside of a handful of a handful. If any form of wasting the seed is sinful, then nobody will be saved, not any married folk. If any form of birth control is wrong, then perhaps a few people will be saved. I do not presume to advocate any form but I don't want to judge those who use some forms of it, even if it involves wasting some seed. I believe it is a faulty exegesis to condemn all spilling of the seed on the basis of the Onan story. I repeat, everybody does it in some way or other. The seed is not human life. If it were, think of the millions of lives wasted in every intercourse. I end as I began. Nobody has the right to burden consciences wherein God does not burden them. A Concerned Friend Rebuttal number 1 Replying to a Concerned Friend on the Subject of Onan by Charles D. Provan Since the Christian News of March 21, 1988 has printed a rebuttal to my article Against Birth Control Christian News of February 29, 1988, it is necessary for me to produce a, quote, counter-rebuttal, end quote, so that the readers of CN, that is Christian News, may judge for themselves which position is scriptural. Because our theological opponent on this issue has called himself, quote, a concerned friend, end quote, we will call him this throughout our reply. When we use this term, we use not we do not use it sarcastically nor do we doubt his or her sincerity in attacking our position. Rather we believe that our concerned friend is to be highly commended for his thinking about a subject which is rarely considered by churchgoers today. For this we are truly appreciative for does not the road to changing one's mind on something begin by considering the subject first? 1. Our friend begins his main argument by attempting to demonstrate that all emission of semen results in the death of a vast majority of the semen. It is of course true that each time sexual intercourse takes place, many individual sperm die since only one sperm unites with the female egg. Many sperm die during nocturnal emissions. Therefore, our concerned friend thinks that there is no difference between deliberate, intentional destruction of semen and the death of semen which takes place during non-birth control and sexual intercourse. However, this reasoning is not correct because it leaves out the factor of the human will and intent. Concerning this subject, the scripture is explicit. This makes the difference between sin and non-sin in many cases. For example, suppose a married woman is discovered engaged engaging in sexual intercourse with a man who is not her own husband. What does the Bible say? The woman who engages in this act willingly is worthy of death, Leviticus 20:10. But if the woman is forced at gunpoint to do this thing, the woman goes free without any blame being attached to her. Deuteronomy 22, verses 25-27 to In both cases, the act is the same. The only difference is the will of the female. This makes the difference between life and death. So it is with the death of the semen. If we have done our limited part to be fruitful and multiply, it is enough. God does the rest, for, after all, it is God who creates children. But birth control involves intentional destruction of semen, the ultimate goal of which is to destroy the single semen which might combine with the female egg conceiving a child. To use another example, sometimes a woman who is pregnant will unintentionally do something which inadvertently causes a spontaneous abortion, otherwise known as a miscarriage. She may accidentally fall down the steps, for instance. Do we attach moral blame to the woman? No. Rather, we sympathize with her misfortune. Yet, if a woman goes to a doctor and pays him to exterminate her child while it is yet in the womb, we correctly say that she is a murderess. The results are exactly the same in both of our hypothetical cases. But how different are the acts in the eyes of God? Guilt is determined by the intent and action of the woman. 2. According to our concerned friend, Onan was killed by God for refusing to give seed to his brother. Let us point out again that the man in Deuteronomy 25, verses 7 and 9, also refuses to give seed to his brother. Yet this man is not killed. Therefore, the difference in conduct is the key to the difference in punishment. And the only difference in conduct is this. While both... refused to give seed to his brother, only Onan destroyed his seed. Therefore, it is for this that he was killed by God. When we say this, we are not saying so on our own. We are saying it because careful consideration of the scripture proves it, and in 1800 years of church history, the view that Onan was killed because of his intentional destruction of semen is the universal view of the Christian church. It is only in our, quote, wonderful modern-day churches, end quote, that birth control has become, quote, approved, end quote. Let us be quick to point out that our century has also produced churches in abundance which have amazingly repudiated the infallibility of the scriptures, churches which assert that abortion isn't murder and homosexuality isn't a perversion we are by no means saying that those who disagree with us on birth control are in agreement with any of the preceding. We are merely pointing out that the same, quote, bad tree, end quote, which produced the theological denial of scripture and the theological acceptance of homosexuality and abortion also pushed for the acceptance of birth control. We ask you, where did this view that birth control is morally acceptable Originate with those who believe the Bible using it as their guide or with non-believers. Any study of the modern birth control movement will show that it did not originate in the Holy Church of God, but rather in pagans like Margaret Sanger. The of our friend that Onan's spilling of seed is no different than spilling of seed which occurs during, quote, non-birth control sexual intercourse, we would also point out a fact which he has not commented upon. Namely, that of all, out of all of the verses which mention the admission of semen in the Old Testament, the Onan verse, Genesis 38, 9, he wasted his seed on the ground, is the only verse to employ the word shachath, and that's S-H-A-C-H-A-T-H, which means to waste, corrupt, destroy, devastate, as our friend has noted. This word is used in many passages as a synonym for killed. See, for example, Genesis 6, verse 17, Genesis 9, verse 15, and Judges 20, verse 21. Do you think that there might be a reason for Onan's submission of seed to be described as a killing of seed while all the other passages use words which merely mean emit? We do. In all other passages, no one does anything to intentionally harm the semen, but in Onan's case, he deliberately killed his. If, as our concerned friend says, quote, there is nothing in the whole Bible that specifically condemns the spilling of the seed, end quote, then why does the scripture use the very negative word shakath? in Onan's case, but not in any of the others. 3. Another question raised by our friend is this. How can anybody say that spilling the seed is worse than adultery or even incest? Let me point out that Martin Luther said this, not me, but I think that his reasoning on the subject went something like this. Quote, adultery and incest, though great evils, at least perform this sexual act in a natural manner, allowing nature to take its course. Onan, on the other hand, took steps to frustrate God's creative activity, perverting nature. Onan's deed is an assault upon the natural order of things, and is therefore worse than adultery or incest." Luther may also have been influenced by the fact that although Tamar, Omar Onan's wife, later committed incest with her father-in-law, Judah, as Genesis 38 says, yet God did not kill her, but he did kill Onan. We are not at this point able to positively affirm Luther's particular statement, as we wish to carefully consider the subject first, but... At the same time, neither do we wish to disagree with Dr. Luther, who certainly at the very least deserves our respect. So we will leave this particular statement on which sins are the worst, adultery and incest or destroying one's semen, for later consideration. We emphatically do affirm, however, Luther's view on birth control, namely that it is a great sin. 4. Our friend asked the question, How can we condemn it, the spilling of seed, if God himself spills the seed in night losses, in intercourse, in menstruation? We agree that God does indeed do these things, yet this does not mean that the intentional destruction of seed is permitted. By no means. We can easily prove that our friend's logic is incorrect by examining parallel cases in the Bible. First, we shall examine the topic of miscarriages. The prophet Hosea says that God causes some miscarriages in order to punish people for sin. Give them, O Lord, what wilt thou give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Hosea 9, verse 14. Does this mean that we humans are permitted by God to punish women by aborting their children? No. For Moses says that if a man causes an abortion, he shall be put to death. Exodus 21, verse 23. Likewise, God kills people all the time, as God declares in Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. And there is no other God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. Because God, without moral blame, kills people all the time, does this mean that we can kill people when we please? Of course not, for God says to us, You shall not murder, Deuteronomy 5, verse 17. In the Bible, it is stated that God has killed children for the sins of their parents. For example, God said to Jeroboam the I of northern Israel, You also have done more evil than all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I am bringing calamity on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male person, both bound and free, in Israel, and I will make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it is all gone. That's 1 Kings 14, verses 9-10, to fulfilled in 1 Kings 15, verse 29. Yet God clearly forbids us from putting children to death for the sins of parents, as he says in Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Every one shall be put to death for his own sin. Scripture contains many things which are allowable to God but forbidden to us, so... Just because God causes the vast majority of semen to die without causing the birth of a child, this does not prove that it is morally acceptable for us to cause semen to die by means of birth control. 5. Later, our friend says that the command of God to be fruitful and multiply is not an absolute command. Jesus did not marry. Paul did not marry. Many cannot marry even if they would. End quote. We would agree that the command to be fruitful and multiply is not an absolute command for all persons. We do not think that eunuchs, three-year-olds, women who are unmarried, and so forth, are obligated to do this because they are not of, they are not or cannot be married. The command is not an absolute command for all people. Just married people. This is not unusual, for the command was not given to Adam until God had given him a wife, which makes sense to us. It is not obvious. Is it not obvious that God's rule on divorce apply only to those folks who are married in the first place? God says that a husband should love his wife. Is this an absolute command of God? Yes, but obviously it only applies to men who have a wife. Just because the command to, to be fruitful and multiply does not apply to people who cannot or are not married, this by no means proves that it does not apply to those to whom the command was given, namely married couples. 6. Next, our theological opponent says God, quote, God does not say anywhere that we must have as many children as possible. A person may be said to be fruitful even if he has only six children, although having been capable of having more. End quote. Our reply is that God does not need to say this directly for it to be so. He says it by implication. When God gave this command to Adam, to Noah's family, and to Jacob, do you think God meant that they were to be fruitful for only a day or a month or a year, or until they had a nuclear family, or as long as they were able? We think that the latter option is correct, since if God had thought it was all right to limit God's blessings to the above people, he would have said so in the pertinent passages. Our friend's example of six being a good number of fruitfulness is to be faulted for the simple reason that, to us, being fruitful and multiplying has no mandatory number. For Abraham and Sarah, their efforts to be fruitful produced only one child, Isaac, even though they multiplied themselves by by only one half. They had been doing their best to have children long before God himself made Isaac, and so they obeyed God to the extent of their ability. This is what God expects of us, not some particular number. What right do we have to cancel God's first blessing he blessed them, etc. Genesis 1.28 To married couples. 7. Our friend says, quote, God told our first parents to fill the earth. The earth is pretty well filled up, etc. I would ask, How does he know this? There are Christians and pagans who quite forcefully disagree with the idea that there is some sort of overpopulation crisis. For example, R.J. Rushdoony in The Myth of Overpopulation and Jermaine Greer in Sex and Destiny, Chapter 14. In any case, let us look to Scripture for our guidance, not to the high priest of the new religions, quote, science, end quote, and, quote, news media, end quote. In Exodus 35, verses 4 to 9, God told the Israelites to donate gifts to Moses to help build the tabernacle. When enough gifts were received to build it, God gave a revelation to Moses to tell the Israelites to stop giving. Exodus 36, verses 5-7 to If God would give a revelation to stop about something like this, don't you think that he would let us know when the world was full to stop a command which had been in effect for some 7,000 years? We could also ask the question, If the world is full... So eliminating the command to be fruitful and multiplying, then why does God still keep adding unnecessary people to an already overpopulated world? After all, he is the only he is the one who causes children to be created, as Psalm one thirty nine verse thirteen says, "For thou didst form my inward parts; thou didst weave me in my mother's womb." So. This objection to our opposition holds no water. 8. Our friendly opponent makes the overstatement, quote, The seed is not human life, end quote. But we, of course, do not think that millions of little people die when someone has a nocturnal emission, nevertheless, this statement needs to be qualified. The fact of the matter is that each seed is alive in a different sense than that of an ordinary cell in the human body. Each seed is self-propelled and can live even when separate from the body. No other types of cells in the human body have the ability to create new and separate human life, giving the proper circumstances, except for the female egg, the female counterpart to the male seed. And if the seed is not human life, then pray tell what type of life is it, Both myself and my opponent once existed as a seed, and I would call him both and myself human. If one eliminated all the human semen from the earth, one would thereby eliminate all future humans also. So there is a close connection between the two, so close that we do affirm that destroying semen is in effect destroying the children who would otherwise be born. And let it be plain to all that those who practice birth control do so to eliminate children that they themselves do not wish to raise. They do not dislike the semen. They dislike the children the semen will turn into. In wartime, soldiers do not blow up trains because they don't like trains. They blow them up because they don't like what the trains deliver. 9. It is of course true that, quote, nobody has the right to burden consciences wherein God does not burden them, end quote. We agree, but it is also true that we are commanded to declare to my people their transgression, Isaiah 58.1. So, if birth control is a sin, then it is commendable and helpful to say so. Since the Bible says that it is a sin, and the Holy Church of Christ has, since its inception, declared it to be so, we come to the conclusion that we are guilty of no sin in declaring that Christians should not practice birth control. And I can truthfully say that my motives are to strengthen the church, not to tear it down. If our opposition to birth control causes, humanly speaking, only one Christian family to have only one more beloved child of God, we consider our writings on the subject to be well worth the effort and will praise God for the blessing. Sincerely Charles D. Proben. Alternate Viewpoint number two Devil's Advocate by Roger by Reverend Roger Covacini one permit me to play the devil's advocate. 2. When a Roman Catholic is being considered for sainthood, the Pope appoints a devil's advocate. Advocate means lawyer, and the devil's advocate is supposed to dig up all the dirt on the proposed saint. His job is to find reasons against the sainthood, even though he may personally favor it. 3. I'm not attacking February 29th's front-page article, The Bible's View of Birth Control, but somewhere in this journal, the question this article raised should be answered. Four. Nor do I have a vested interest in birth control. Since we got married, my wife has had a baby every two years. Our youngest died ten weeks ago, and the best news anyone could give us now is that the Lord is sending someone to fill a hole in our hearts. But somebody has to ask the questions that Charles Provan did not answer. Five. First, The command to be fruitful and multiply is only half the commandment. It is half of a balanced commandment. The other half is to fill the earth and subdue it. 6. Most people and nations seem to get either one half or the other way out of proportion. Western nations are committing race suicide because they are so interested in bringing the earth into subjection, that is to say, having things the way they want them in their environment by the purchase of goods, services, and machinery, that they refuse to have enough children to even replace themselves, much less fill the earth. 7. In the third world, however, some parents have children that have to be put out in the street to steal or starve at the age of three because the parents are so busy filling the earth That they can't subdue the earth sufficiently to keep body and soul together. 8. Further, the article fails to answer the question of why people today don't want children. The chief reason why people today do not regard children as a blessing is the radical restructuring of society that happened after the Industrial Revolution. 200 years ago, a young man asked Franklin what was the quickest, quickest way to get rich. Franklin said, quote, Marry a widow with nine children, end quote. That was true then when children as young as three were productive members of the family. Their labor may have been worth only a dime a day, but if their room and board only cost a nickel, they were productive, because a nickel was an important part of the family's income. Nine, but the same advice would bankrupt a man today because today children are not able to be productive members of society. Jobs today pay a lot more, but they are too complicated to learn until the teens or twenties. Meanwhile, children are an unremitting expense. 10. What concerns me about Provan's article is the failure to recognize these facts and the failure to see how the changing structure of society changes the applicability of various scriptures. For instance, the blessing of a large family was immediately evident in the days when the family was your main form of old age insurance. Now that we have Social Security, we depend on other people's children instead of our own. The church has to consider such facts before making doctrinal pronouncements. Eleven, And the scripture that must be considered when doing this is contained in Matthew 23, verse 4, where Jesus pronounced seven woes upon the Pharisees. One of their faults was that they tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Twelve, we should recognize that every child is a burden, even though a very precious one. We would give our health, our comfort, and everything we own to have, quote, little sister back. But the church also has to deal with birth control evangelically rather than legalistically. In other words, we have to make people want children by helping them raise them instead of demanding that they should shoulder the burden out of a sense of duty. Thirteen, we cannot assume that shouldering these burdens will automatically bring about the blessings needed to bear the load. In the first place, we may be misunderstanding the Bible. In the second place, we have the experience of others to warn us. Look at Utah, where the Mormons frown on birth control and encourage early marriage and large family. Utah has one of the highest divorce rates in the country, at least partly because of the great strain put on a marriage by having many children. So if we load heavy burdens on backs, at the very least we will have to lift a finger to help them. Fourteen. This is what Lutherans do in our crisis pregnancy counseling, isn't it? Unlike the evangelicals and fundamentalists, whose approach started out as a legislative one and only lately has become one of helping the unwent mother with the burdens caused by an unplanned child, our approach from the very first was to offer help to the hurting so that unwilling mothers could cope with the various burdens a child brought about. We cannot deny that there is hardly a surer road to poverty in this country than being a single mother, and as we try to deal with that issue, we also must deal with the fact that the birth of each child usually brings a lot more stress into a family than there was before. 15. Now, are we as a church, quote, lifting a finger, end quote, to the strains of our brothers and sisters in Christ? For instance, are those who choose to be DINCs, DINC means double income, no children, until their mid 30s, recognizing that they have so much more disposable income that they should consider double tithing both salaries to take some of the burden of supporting the church off large families? Do they think of families with many children when they decide to discard something? like, for instance, an old car that is still good, but which they are tired of? Do they give heavily of their time to the church to take some of the burden off parents? This year someone we know only as, quote, Santa's helper, unquote, gave each of our children a new pair of winter boots and a toy. We still haven't the faintest idea who, quote, Santa's helper is, I would like to think he, she, or they are childless adults helping out the largest family in the parish, not just parishioners helping out the pastor's family after a Christmas time death. Maybe they are both. 16. Since the structure of society provides a great many of the reasons why people, even Christians, sometimes consider sterility a good thing, the Christian citizen can be be doing what he thinks best to change the structure of society. Seventeen, for instance, in my opinion, the replacement of Social Security with compulsory private insurance would do a lot towards bringing childbearing back into fashion. Wage earners should still have old-age taxes taken out of their checks, but those funds should be used to buy IRAs or IRIS from private agencies. The government should have nothing to do with it. In this way, at least, people wouldn't be depending on everybody else's children to support them. And since they would own the proceeds instead of disappearing on their desk, the iris would become part of their estate. They might want to have somebody to leave it to. 18. In Provence's account of Onan, which was very thoughtfully done, we must still answer this question whether there is still a further reason explaining the bare words of Scripture. Because he wasted his seed is the stated reason. But by practicing coitus interruptus, Onan was doing more. He did what Ananias and Sapphira did in the sixth chapter of Acts, taking what he wanted, having the appearance of respectability and the pleasure of intercourse. While fraudulently depriving his dead brother's wife of what she wanted, the completion of intercourse, and the blessing of children to support her in her old age and to carry on the name of her dead husband. 19. Next, Provan quotes Calvin, but doesn't fully understand him. 20. When Calvin said Onan, as it were by a violent abortion, no less cruelly than filthily, cast upon the ground the offspring of his brother, we have to understand that Calvin believed in the medieval garden theory of reproduction. Human conception was not properly understood in the Middle Ages.
1: Free newsletter and a complimentary copy of our large discount mail order Christian book catalog specializing in Reformation resources. Contact Stillwater's Revival Books. On the internet we are at www.swrb.com by email we're at s swrv w r b @ s w r b . c o m our mailing address is 4710-37a avenue edmonton that's e d m o n t o n alberta abbreviated capital a capital b canada t6l 3t5 by phone 403 450 3730. After February of 1999, our area code will change. We can be reached by phone at 780 450 3730. And keep in mind that William Hetherington, commenting on the Solemn League and Covenant, the epitome of Second Reformation attainments, in his History of the Westminster Assembly of Divines, 1856 edition, page 134, writes, No man who is able to understand its nature and to feel and appreciate its spirit and aim will deny it to be the wisest, the sublimest, and the most sacred document ever framed by uninspired men.